Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. It's time for Justice Matters with former federal prosecutor and MSNBC analyst, Glenn Kirchner. This time in our long-form weekend podcast, Glenn recaps the legal stories of the week, and he discusses personal responsibility in the age of Donald Trump's insurrection. First up, Rudy Giuliani has admitted in court to lying about two Georgia election workers, Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman. Hey all, Glenn Kirshner here. Welcome to the weekend edition of Justice Matters. On the weekends, as you may know, we try to air things out a bit. We try to cover the legal developments of the past week. You know, we try to figure out where we are on the road to accountability, on the road to justice. And then we do a deeper dive into some issue of consequence, you know, often involving the need for a renaissance of ethics in government. Today, after we're done the legal recap, I want to tackle the following issue. Personal responsibility in today's Republican Party. I know, I know it sounds like an oxymoron, but specifically I want to talk about some recent developments regarding Mark Meadows, Donald Trump's former chief of staff, and I also want to touch on pardons. Pardons that were requested by members of Congress because they wanted to get away with the crimes they knew they committed on and around January 6th, 2021. Personal responsibility in today's Republican Party. But friends, let's start with the legal recap. Today might be something of a lightning round because you know when I think of the legal developments, I think of the term fast and furious. So, in no particular order, let's start with a story that, frankly, warmed this old prosecutor's heart. Rudy Giuliani. Rudy admitted in a court filing that he lied. And he didn't lie about, you know, just any old thing. He lied about election fraud in Georgia in connection with the 2020 presidential election. Friends, you remember the two election workers who testified to the January 6th House Select Committee, Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman, a mother and daughter. Two African-American women, two poll workers who said that, you know, they so enjoyed being part of the democratic process, being part of the process that helps ensure our free and fair and reliable elections. They worked among hundreds and hundreds of folks who helped process votes in Fulton County, Georgia. They assisted in the, you know, the processing, the inputting of ballots into the tabulation machines. Now, friends, I confess, I don't know the ins and outs of voting machines and how each state tabulates its votes, but you could watch the testimony of these two women when they testified to Congress. And you could see how important it was to them to be involved in this miraculous thing we call American democracy. American democracy in action. And what did they get for their efforts, for their dedication, for their devotion to working to help ensure our free and fair elections, they got Rudy Giuliani lying about them. Remember there was this videotape of what was going on at the State Farm Arena. That was the location down in Fulton County, Georgia, where the ballots were being processed and counted. And Rudy Giuliani got his hands on a piece of that video. 
the video of the ballot processing at the State Farm Arena, and he singled out Shamos and Ruby Freeman. And he said, look at them, look at them. You know, they look like a, a couple of drug dealers passing around vials of crack or heroin as they engage in what's obviously election fraud. Just look at them, right? Look at them. They're just inputting fake ballots and they're passing things around. And look, look, the thing they're passing around looks like a, like a flash drive or like a, like a USB drive, a thumb drive. Now friends, I'm not a computer guy. I can barely spell USB. But these were the allegations Rudy was making against election workers, Shamos and Ruby Freeman. Look at them. They look like drug dealers, don't they? You know, friends, if the election workers were wealthy, white women of privilege, you think Rudy Giuliani would have been saying, look at those two drug dealers, right? No, that is hateful racism, obvious racism, disgusting racism. That's what that is. And of course, friends, we came to learn in the sworn testimony before Congress of Shea and Ruby that they were passing ginger mints back and forth to one another while they were honestly, ethically, and appropriately inputting ballots, processing ballots, helping tabulate ballots in the Georgia state election. They had no thumb drives, no flash drives, no USB drives. They were doing their job helping guarantee our free and fair elections. Now, Shea and Ruby sued Rudy Giuliani, and they also sued a number of faux news organizations that had defamed them. The news organizations settled. Now, we don't know for how much, but Rudy refused to settle. He was sticking with his lies. I don't know, maybe he was proud of defaming them. And then in that lawsuit, in that civil litigation that Shea and Ruby brought against Rudy Giuliani, the judge started riding Rudy, started saying, look, you're failing to produce discovery as you are required to do by law and by court order. And Rudy would shoot back saying, oh, judge, I'm broke, I, I'm broke, I don't have enough money to produce discovery. I, I don't have enough money to hire an outside company to you know, research and go through all of my records. I just can't possibly produce discovery as I am required to do. So the judge threatened to hit him with sanctions and penalties and fines. And you know what? Ultimately, Rudy, just the other day, gave up the ghost. He filed a two-page declaration in that civil defamation suit brought against him by Shea and Ruby. He said, okay, okay, okay. I lied. I lied about Ruby and Shea. Now he goes on to say, but I had a constitutional right to lie, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know what? Tell it to a jury because you are going to lose that lawsuit now, Rudy, in spectacular fashion that defamation suit that has been brought against you by those two women about whom you lied. And let's remember, you didn't lie about any old thing. You lied about fraud in the 2020 presidential election. And friends, here's the beauty of it. Rudy can try to limit that admission that he made in writing and that he filed in court, that he lied about those two election workers that he fraudulently claimed that there was something nefarious going on that undermined the election's result in Georgia. And remember, he lied, you know, not because he hated 
Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman, but because he wanted Donald Trump to remain in power unlawfully, unconstitutionally, contrary to the expressed will of the American voters. He wanted to install Donald Trump as a dictator. He wanted to deny Joe Biden his rightful election win. That's why he lied. And let's see if Rudy's admission that he lied makes an appearance in Fulton County District Attorney Fawny Willis's criminal case down in Georgia. Rudy can try to limit it to his civil case, but at this moment, friends, we are all poised, waiting for those Georgia indictments to drop in mid-August, and let's not forget, District Attorney Willis told Rudy Giuliani, hey, sport, guess what? You're a target of the grand jury's criminal investigation in Georgia. So I suspect District Attorney Fawny Willis and perhaps the Georgia State Grand Jury are keenly interested in Rudy's recent admission in court that he lied. He lied about election fraud in Georgia and he tried to keep Donald Trump in power unlawfully and unconstitutionally. Buckle up, Rudy. Justice is coming for you. Coming up after the break, Hunter Biden's plea agreement has broken down. Glenn talks about that next on Justice Matters. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hunter Biden has pleaded not guilty after his plea breaks down in court. Glenn explains, this actually happens far more often than you think. Okay, friends, let's do a quick hit on Hunter Biden. The Hunter Biden guilty plea breakdown. And I don't want to spend too much time on this because I think it will ultimately end up being a non-story, at least a non-story on the legal front. On the political front, of course, the Republicans will forever try to convince the American public that Hunter Biden is the boogeyman, right? Hunter Biden's laptop, Hunter Biden's tax problems, Hunter Biden this, Hunter Biden that, none of which means anything to the fact-based community, none of which means anything to the American voters, none of which, you know, makes anyone's life appreciably better. And yet, that's what the Republicans obsess about. Hunter Biden, Hunter Biden, Hunter Biden, right? Not lowering drug prices, not ensuring living wages for people, not making the lives of their constituents appreciably better in any way. Nope, Hunter Biden, he's the boogeyman. You know, you would probably have better healthcare coverage available to you if, if it wasn't for Hunter Biden you'd probably be earning a living wage. You know, if it wasn't for Hunter Biden, you'd probably be able to afford your insulin if it wasn't for Hunter Biden. You know, friends, the Republican Party is circling the drain. And frankly, when it implodes, I hope a new fact-based party rises up from the ashes. You know, maybe it will be led by the Liz Cheney's and the 
Adam Kinzingers of the Republican Party, people who actually care about the health and vitality of our democracy more than they care about staying in office and certainly more than they care about Hunter Biden. Yeah, we'll see. But the reason I think this is a non-story, friends, is because, you know, as a prosecutor for 30 years, do you know how many times I was involved in a guilty plea breakdown? Many. Now, admittedly, guilty plea breakdowns happen more often in local and state courts than they happen in federal court, but they happen in federal court, you know? And let me just go down this little side alley for context. In Washington, D.C., where I prosecuted at the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office, folks may not know this, but because D.C. is not a state, and hopefully that will change someday, because it seems to me if you got taxation, you ought to have representation. You know, call me crazy. But in D.C., the federal prosecutors, the Department of Justice prosecutors who work at the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office handle all prosecutions in the city. We handle all federal prosecutions and because D.C. is not a state, they don't have a district attorney's office, we also handle all local prosecutions. And that is unlike the other 93 United States attorney's offices around the country, right? Each state has one or more U.S. attorney's offices. Those are kind of like the field offices of the Department of Justice. You know, I would often analogize to the military. Military headquarters is where? The Pentagon, right? Just outside of Washington, D.C. Then you have all the field offices, the Army posts and the Air Force bases around the country and indeed around the world. And the Department of Justice is set up similarly. You have the main Department of Justice, what we call Maine, Maine Justice. I'm not going to say that's the land where the bureaucrats dwell, but it kind of is. No, not everybody there is a, a bureaucrat. I will say that <laughs> as a Fed, I was allergic to bureaucracy. It's one of the reasons I never sought to work at Maine Justice. I always wanted to be a few blocks up the street at the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office where all of the cases get prosecuted in D.C. And sort of like when I was an Army JAG beginning back in the 80s, I was allergic to the Pentagon, right? I never wanted to work an assignment at the Pentagon. I wanted to be out in the field, right, doing the field work of Army prosecutors handling court-martial cases. So, you know, I wanted to be out in the field as both a civilian federal prosecutor and as a military prosecutor. And when you're out in the field in D.C. as a federal prosecutor, yes, you prosecute federal cases. I tried multiple lengthy RICO cases in federal court in D.C., but you also do all of the prosecuting in local court in District of Columbia Superior Court. So friends, the reason I give you that backdrop about all the work that prosecutors do in D.C., both federally and locally, is because across the street from federal court in local court, D.C. Superior Court, we do volume business. We brought between 12,000 and 14,000 prosecutions every year in D.C. Superior Court, whereas we only brought about 400 or so in federal court. I always said that the hard work of justice in the District of Columbia was done in D.C. Superior Court, in local court. It's a high volume operation and there are lots of guilty pleas. So as a result, there were often guilty plea breakdowns, right? Much more a local court thing than a federal court thing, but it happened in federal court as well. Now, what is a guilty plea breakdown? What does it look like? Well. The parties, that is the prosecutors and the defense attorneys, will you know work long and hard and diligently trying to negotiate a guilty plea, something that will cover all of the bases, all of the possibilities, all of the contingencies, the eventualities, not only in connection with 
the guilty plea itself, but what happens if the defendant pleads guilty and then does something wrong thereafter? Maybe violates a condition of probation, maybe violates a condition of what's called supervised release, which is kind of the fancy term that they use in federal court. You know, what happens? There are other matters that have to be negotiated. You know, what's the possible sentence the defendant is facing in connection with his or her guilty plea? Is there a sentencing cap? For example, will the parties try to limit the sentence that the judge can impose? So all of these contingencies and eventualities have to be worked out in advance. They have to be embodied in the plea agreement paperwork. And then you go into court and you present it all to the judge. But you know what? Sometimes the judge asks some questions that aren't answered by the plea agreement. And the parties will often struggle to give the judge answers that are accurate, give the judge answers that are sort of agreed to by both parties, even if they're not expressly in the written plea agreement, and things can get very dicey. And sometimes the judge will say, it sounds like y'all still have some work to do to iron out some of the wrinkles in this plea agreement. So I'm gonna go ahead, enter a plea of not guilty for the defendant right now. I'm gonna send you all out for an hour or a day or a week or a month. I'm gonna let you all iron everything out. Then I'm gonna have you come back and I'm gonna ask the same questions. And hopefully you will have answers that you've both agreed to, that you've put in the plea paperwork, and then we can move forward. In the majority, I would even say the overwhelming majority of the guilty plea breakdown scenarios, the parties sort of retreat, regroup, renegotiate, redraft the plea agreement, then they go back to court and the plea proceeds smoothly, right? Comes off without a hitch. That is ordinarily what happens. Not always. Sometimes the parties can't agree, can't answer the questions to the judge's satisfaction. There is no meeting of the minds and the case is set for trial. Big deal. Let the case go to trial. Let a jury make the decision about what Hunter Biden did or didn't do, what he should be held accountable for and what he shouldn't. You know, now I will say that this was kind of an unusual plea agreement, and I've talked before about how, you know, if his name was Hunter Anderson, Hunter Baker, you know, Hunter Smith, Hunter Jones, he probably wouldn't have been prosecuted at all. Um, but because his name was Hunter Biden, it feels to me like the prosecutors bent over backwards to charge him with something, and it looks like he undoubtedly committed some crimes, certainly some tax crimes, and it looks like one gun offense for not accurately filling out paperwork about his drug history when he was purchasing a, a firearm. But it's an unusual plea agreement because he's pleading guilty to a couple of misdemeanor tax offenses for failing to pay his taxes. And with respect to the firearms charge, he's being put in what's called pretrial diversion. Now, let me say, pretrial diversion is a thing. It's in the U.S. Attorney's Manual, and it is authorized for certain firearms offenses, like the one Hunter Biden apparently committed. You know, you can't use pretrial diversion if somebody brandished or used a firearm during a crime of violence, but for erroneously, inaccurately, falsely filling out paperwork in pursuit of your purchase of a firearm. That is pretrial diversion eligible. But pretrial diversion, stay with me here, friends. I know I'm getting down into the weeds of DOJ practice. Pretrial diversion is kind of like a contract. It's an agreement between the defendant and the prosecutors that look, you keep your nose clean for what, six months or a year or what have you, and this gun charge will go away entirely because that is the bargain we struck with your defense team if you also plead guilty to these two tax crimes over here. 
So basically the parties were mixing legal apples and oranges in this plea uh, proceeding. They said he's going to sort of formally plead guilty to two tax crimes, but then over here we've got this side contract for pretrial diversion. And if everything kind of works out the way we expect it to when Hunter Biden keeps his nose clean, this gun charge will go away entirely. And the judge had some questions about the interaction between those two things. Specifically, okay, well, what do I, as the judge, have jurisdiction over, you know, and what will I be supervising? And if there's a violation, you know, in one arena, does it impact the charge in another arena? And so on and so forth. And so let me be clear, friends, these are things that should have been worked out, you know, to the nth degree before they ever set foot in court to try to present this guilty plea to the judge, but mistakes were made. Let me let you in on a secret. The criminal justice system is populated by human beings, fallible human beings. Mistakes are made. Mistakes are made every day. Friends, I tried more than 50 murder trials, and I don't know how many trials overall if you count up the, you know, other cases, property crimes and drug crimes and gun crimes and obstruction and um, uh, conspiracy cases, RICO cases, rape cases, arson cases, all of which I've tried. I'm sure I made mistakes in every case. Do you know how many times I was arguing to a jury and I stumbled over something or I misstated the testimony of some witness? The first thing I did is I would apologize. I would say, you know what, folks? My memory is not perfect, and my memory doesn't control the evidence that was introduced during the course of this trial. Your memory controls. So let me tell you something right here, friends, because I'm fallible. I'm imperfect. If I say something during the course of this closing argument that kind of doesn't comport with the way you remember, the witness testifying doesn't quite jive with your take on what some witness maybe six weeks ago earlier in this trial said, your recollection controls. I'm going to do my level best to try to be accurate and get it all right. But what I can promise you, friends, we've been in this court together for weeks and weeks now. I made mistakes. And I always try to do better. And if I make a mistake and I realize it, you can bet I'm going to let you know because your recollection of the evidence controls, not mine. Okay, that was another side alley I went down. And do I miss being in the courtroom after trying cases for 30 years? Do I ever? Okay, let's get back on track. Let's finish up the Hunter Biden saga, at least legally speaking. The Republicans will never be willing to finish up the Hunter Biden saga politically. But I do expect that this case will, will go back to court and the wrinkles will be ironed out and Hunter Biden will enter his guilty plea. So friends, as far as a legal story, this is not a huge deal. Of course, as far as a political story, yes, the Republicans will forever sort of, you know, beat the Hunter Biden drum as opposed to, you know, seriously trying to tackle issues of consequence to the American people or to their constituents, the Republicans' constituents, they will continue to obsess about Hunter Biden and, you know, books they want to ban and denouncing people for who they are, for who they love, for their orientation banning women's constitutional privacy rights. These are the things that get Republicans up in the morning. These are the things Republicans promise will, you know, make America great again. When indeed all the Republicans do by focusing on these non-issues is hurt everyone and everything and make America a laughing stock. But hang in there, friends. Because, as I say, all data points suggest the Republican Party is imploding. Okay, friends, let's tackle one last legal recap story. And this one has to do with search warrants. 
So we all knew that the FBI, the Department of Justice, got a search warrant for Mar-a-Lago, Donald Trump's third-rate Florida resort and personal residence. And we know that a search was conducted at Mar-a-Lago. How did we find out? Well, Donald Trump opened his great big orange pie hole and told us all that the FBI had searched Mar-a-Lago. That's how we found out. So we knew that in connection with Donald Trump's documents, obstruction of justice and espionage crimes, for which he is presently being prosecuted with a trial date in May, recently set by one of his judges, Trump appointed judge Aileen Cannon, we knew that in conjunction with that case, one search warrant had been executed at Mar-a-Lago. And then we got some reporting this week based on the unsealing of a court document that it wasn't just one search warrant that was issued, that was executed in connection with that investigation, but it was eight search warrants. Count them, eight. Eight search warrants were obtained and executed in connection with Trump's documents crimes. Okay. Now, that was a little bit of a surprise because, well, Donald Trump only ran his mouth about one search warrant, the one at Mar-a-Lago. So what can we take away from this revelation that there were actually eight search warrants? Well, let me not bury the lead, friends. This is not as dramatic as it sounds. Why do I say that? Well, when we conduct large-scale investigations, long-term investigations, conspiracy investigations, like of a former president of the United States, you know, we are likely to get lots and lots of search warrants during the course of those kinds of investigations, but those search warrants are not necessarily going to be for somebody's home. Now, we do get search warrants for homes, for apartments, for garages, for storage facilities, and various other properties. You know, just as the FBI got a search warrant for Mar-a-Lago, we do get lots of search warrants for physical locations where evidence of crime might be found, might be hidden, might be secreted by the bad guys or the bad gals. But there's lots of other stuff that we get search warrants for, like cell phones, like computers, laptops, like social media accounts. So let's just do a really quick Team Justice Law School class on the Fourth Amendment search and seizure. Fourth Amendment is my favorite amendment, just 54 words in length, and boy does it sing. I know that makes me sound like a constitutional geek. I'll cop to that. Let me just read these 54 words in the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution. Quote, the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated. And no warrants shall issue but upon probable cause supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. I'm telling you, friends, that amendment sings, right? When I teach the Fourth Amendment to my undergraduate criminal justice students at George Washington University, which I've been doing for years, both in the fall and the winter slash spring semesters, we spend a lot of time on the Fourth Amendment. I will say I used to teach at George Washington University School of Law, but I gave that up years ago because I was kind of done being part of the machinery that produced more lawyers, inflicted more lawyers on America. It's kind of a joke, but I do think we have enough lawyers. But now I really enjoy teaching the undergrad students. When I returned to teaching, I said, you know, can I teach undergrad criminal justice instead of teaching at the law school? and the faculty was good enough to accommodate me. So when I talk about the Fourth Amendment, I draw a picture on the blackboard, or I guess it's a dry erase whiteboard now, of a big brick wall. 
And I say, think of the Fourth Amendment. Indeed, think about the first 10 amendments to the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, as this brick wall. On one side of the brick wall, you have the government, law enforcement, prosecutors. On the other side of the brick wall, you have WTP, we the people. And that brick wall protects us against, in the Fourth Amendment context, unreasonable searches and seizures, right? If law enforcement is to scale that wall or get around that wall or go through that wall, they have to do it the right way, the lawful way, the constitutional way. They have to have probable cause supported by oath or affirmation, and generally speaking, they have to have a warrant before they can search our persons, houses, papers, and effects. Reasonableness is the touchstone of the Fourth Amendment because it protects us all against unreasonable searches and seizures. Now, yes, there have been billions of words written about those 54 words and precisely what they mean in an infinite number of contexts and settings and factual scenarios, but boy, you know, I like being protected against unreasonable governmental intrusion. So, yeah, I love me some Fourth Amendment. And the reason that we have to get search warrants for houses, for persons, for papers, for effects, for your garage, for your storage facility, for your boat, for your car, for your cell phone, for your laptop, for your social media account, is because in all of those things, in all of that stuff, we the people have a reasonable expectation of privacy. I expect the contents of my computer, my phone, my wallet, my house, my car, my garage, to be protected against unreasonable searches and seizures, unreasonable police or law enforcement intrusion. The police can't just come into my house and start rummaging around in my stuff. Why? Because the Fourth Amendment says they can't. They can't do it unreasonably. They have to have a warrant. They have to have probable cause. They have to sort of touch the legal and constitutional bases before they can invade my reasonable expectation of privacy in my home and in my stuff. So that's why sometimes when we get search warrants, let's now go back down to Mar-a-Lago, even though it's hot and it's bug infested. Let's go down to Mar-a-Lago and talk about why there might be eight search warrants. Well, when they searched Mar-a-Lago, the warrant might have authorized them to seize any number of laptops and computers and cell phones and safes and safes, I mean, you know, like in which you keep your important stuff like where Donald Trump might have kept, I don't know, some of his top secret documents that he had stolen from the federal government. And then what we do is when we seize all that stuff, we sometimes will go back to the judge and apply for a supplemental search warrant so we can search a cell phone or a laptop computer. Or we might get search warrants to search a social media account. Or it might be that they got search warrants to search other properties, for example, we know that Donald Trump has a co-defendant, old Walt Nauda, his body man and main box mover and document hider, document concealer, right? He is now charged as a co-conspirator, a co-defendant with Donald Trump in the Florida case. And it may very well be that the FBI, the federal prosecutors obtained a search warrant for Walt Nauda's home. I would be shocked if they didn't. But Walt Nauda didn't open his big pie hole and run his mouth about the fact that his home was searched if his home was searched. Donald Trump did run his mouth about Mar-a-Lago being searched. So I'm not saying that they didn't get search warrants for other physical locations, other properties, other homes. They may have, but it may be that they got those other seven warrants to cover some of those other items that we were just discussing. Now, People have forever asked, what about Bedminster? Donald Trump's New Jersey golf club. What about Trump Tower? Donald Trump's New York residence. Did they search those locations? Okay, among those seven search warrants that we learned about, in addition to the one at Mar-a-Lago, it could be 
that one was executed at Bedminster, that Bedminster was searched. It could be that one was executed at Trump Tower and Trump Tower was searched. However, if that was the case, wouldn't we hear Donald Trump running his mouth, yelling about it, screaming about it, complaining about it, and most pointedly lying about it, about the nature of the search? I suspect if Bedminster or Trump Tower or other Trump properties or residences had been searched, Trump couldn't help but run his mouth about it. So I, I, we can't rule it out that those seven search warrants included, for example, Bedminster, but I think it unlikely. I think it is more likely that it involved cell phones, maybe cell phones seized from other people, not just folks at Mar-a-Lago, not just Walt Nauda. Trump's co-defendant, but other people. But we will learn more. We will probably learn more in the coming weeks and months as things begin to develop in Donald Trump's documents, obstruction of justice, and espionage case. On the way, Donald Trump is now facing new charges in the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case. Glenn discusses this next on Justice Matters. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Prosecutors in Special Counsel Jack Smith's office have added a new indictment against Donald Trump where he's charged with trying to erase incriminating evidence of him hiding classified documents. Why is this devastating to Trump? Here's Glenn. Okay, friends, we have a late-breaking addition to today's Justice Matters podcast. As we were all sitting around waiting for a new Donald Trump indictment to drop, right? We have been waiting for the January 6th insurrection indictment to be issued by the grand jury that is sitting in federal court in Washington, D.C. We thought Thursday might be the day. And then as Thursday drew to a close, there was no indictment issued by the D.C. grand jury. And then, out of left field, we get a new Trump indictment down in Florida. Now, this is in connection with Donald Trump's documents, obstruction of justice, espionage case. You know, the one being presided over by Trump-appointed Judge Aileen Cannon, which is now set for trial in May of 2024. Well, lo and behold, we get what's called a superseding indictment. That's a fancy term for a second indictment for a case that has already been indicted once. Prosecutors will seek superseding indictments when they have evidence that leads them to want to charge either more defendants, add new defendants to the case, particularly when it's a conspiracy case, or they want to add new charges to an existing defendant. They will ask the grand jury to vote out superseding or subsequent indictments in the case. And we just got a superseding indictment in Donald Trump's federal criminal case in Florida. Now, it is 60 some odd pages long. I am still absorbing it, but I wanted to do a hot take on what I'm seeing and why 
what I'm seeing is devastating to Donald Trump. The reason it's devastating is because the new charges in this indictment involve Donald Trump directing the destruction of incriminating evidence. Surveillance footage of the area where Donald Trump was unlawfully concealing classified documents and national defense information. He got a subpoena for the surveillance footage, for the security camera footage that covered the area of the storage room where Donald Trump was unlawfully concealing classified documents and national defense information. And so rather than comply with the subpoena, what does Donald Trump do? Donald Trump directs that the server be deleted, that the security footage be destroyed because he knew it would be sharply incriminating of him. So what this superseding indictment does is it adds a new co-defendant. You may remember the first indictment involved just two conspirators, Donald Trump and his body man and main box mover, Walt Nauda. Well, now this new indictment adds a third defendant, a guy named Carlos de Oliveira. Carlos de Oliveira, by way of background, was a Trump valet who Trump then promoted at some point to property manager at Mar-a-Lago. And I'm gonna go right to the money line in this new indictment. It's on page 29, paragraph 84, for those of you scoring at home. And here's how it reads. Defendant de Oliveira told Trump employee number four. Now, Trump employee number four is the director of IT at Mar-a-Lago. Trump employee number four is not named in the indictment. That's not unusual. We don't put witnesses' names in the indictment. We only put defendants' names in the indictment. But it's important to know that Trump employee number four is the director of IT at Mar-a-Lago. De Oliveira told Trump employee number four that the boss wanted the server deleted. Trump employee number four responded that he would not know how to do that and that he did not believe he would have the right to do that. Trump employee number four told De Oliveira that De Oliveira would have to reach out to another employee who was a supervisor of security for Trump's business organization. De Oliveira then insisted to Trump employee four that the boss wanted the server deleted and asked, what are we gonna do? Friends, that's devastating. And I'm gonna explain in a minute why that's devastating. We're gonna have to do a quick Team Justice Law School class here. But trust me, as an evidentiary matter, it is devastating. Here's why. So as the law of conspiracy has developed in the United States over time, there is this belief, there is this position that is sort of enforced by the way the conspiracy laws have developed, that conspiracies are really dangerous. Why? Well, when one person is out and about doing crime, it can be dangerous. But when multiple people band together, when they join together in a conspiracy, when they agree to commit crimes together, it's more dangerous. Two criminal heads are more dangerous than one. Three are more dangerous than two. So the conspiracy laws can be very favorable to the prosecution. And I'm gonna describe just one way that is so, and it has to do with the admissibility of co-conspirator statements. Stick with me, friends. I'm gonna to try to break this down and make it as understandable and digestible as I can. And let's use the concrete example of these three defendants, Trump, Walt Nauda, and Carlos de Oliveira. Let's go to the courtroom in which Donald Trump and Nauda and Oliveira are now being tried for these crimes. The three of them are sitting 
at defense counsel table. They have a whole gaggle of lawyers around them. And a witness is called to the stand. Who's that witness? Trump employee number four, the director of IT at Mar-a-Lago. And he is asked, sir, would you please tell the ladies and gentlemen of the jury what defendant De Oliveira told you on June 27th, 2022? And the director of IT would testify, well, De Oliveira told me that the boss wanted the server deleted. Now, how is that statement admissible? Well, it's admissible against De Oliveira himself. Why? Because it came out of De Oliveira's mouth. So the rules of evidence consider it to be an admission by the defendant on trial. More precisely, a statement of a party opponent is what the rules of evidence call it. But it's admissible against De Oliveira because it's an admission by him. However, think about it, it's hearsay as it relates to Donald Trump, right? Because the director of IT is going to testify that De Oliveira said, Trump said, delete the server. More precisely, the boss wanted the server deleted. So it didn't come directly out of Trump's mouth. It's hearsay. How can it be admissible against Donald Trump at trial? Friends, here's the beauty of co-conspirator statements. Because conspiracies are especially dangerous and because it's a bunch of people banding together and agreeing to commit crime together, guess what? Every statement made by every co-conspirator is admissible against every other co-conspirator. Doesn't matter whose mouth it came out of. Put another way, you can just Assume that it came out of everybody's mouth because everybody in the conspiracy is on the hook. So when employee number four, the director of IT at Mar-a-Lago says D. Oliveira said the boss wants the server deleted, it might as well have come out of Donald Trump's mouth because the rules of evidence say a co-conspirator statement is admissible against all of the other co-conspirators if, and here is the evidentiary foundation, this is what prosecutors are required to prove if the judge is to allow the co-conspirator statements to be admitted into evidence against all conspirators. The statement has to be made during the course of the conspiracy and in furtherance of the conspiracy. Those are the two requirements. Was this during the course of the conspiracy? Well, let's look at some relevant dates. This statement, according to the indictment, was made on June 27th, 2022, and this indictment charges that Trump and Nauda and De Oliveira were in a conspiracy from May through August of 2022. So element one satisfied. This was clearly made during the course of the conspiracy. Was it made in furtherance of the conspiracy? You're damn right it was. This is Trump's co-defendant, co-conspirator, De Oliveira, trying to enlist the director of IT to destroy evidence in violation of a grand jury subpoena for that very evidence. So you bet this corrupt ask by D. Oliveira, hey, the boss wants the server deleted. That was a statement in furtherance of the conspiracy. So yes, friends, this is a real problem for Donald Trump and a real opportunity for D. Oliveira. And it remains an opportunity for Walt Nauda because I don't know why those two men would want to go down with the SS Trump, would want to land themselves in prison for decades when they could easily cooperate with the prosecution. They could flip. They could provide truthful testimony about the crimes of Donald Trump, and they could save themselves a whole lot of prison time. So they have a decision to make. Do they want to stay strong? 
Do they want to remain loyal to Donald Trump, the man who knows no loyalty to another human being? Or do they want to save themselves and perhaps do five years in prison instead of 25 years in prison? Because let me tell you, these men don't get a pass. They can flip, they can cooperate against Donald Trump, but I predict they will not get a pass. They'll get a reduced charge. They'll get a reduced sentence. But these folks are going to be going to prison. Coming up, many lawmakers asked Donald Trump for pardons for the crimes they had committed trying to overturn the 2020 election. Glenn talks about taking responsibility for one's actions next on Justice Matters. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Republicans in Congress attempted to help Donald Trump steal the 2020 election from Joe Biden and change our democracy to a dictatorship. Is personal responsibility in today's Republican Party an oxymoron? Here's Gwen. Okay, friends, let's move on to our last topic for today, and that is personal responsibility in the age of Donald Trump's insurrection. Now, we all know there are many in the Republican Party who are not keen on the idea of personal responsibility. We know there's a whole batch of members of Congress, current and former, who asked for pardons. They sought presidential pardons for the crimes they knew they had committed on and around January 6th. That would kind of be the opposite of taking responsibility for one's actions, for one's conduct, for one's crimes. I mean, think about it, friends. This is staggering. Members of Congress knew they committed crimes on and around January 6th in connection with the attempted overthrow of our democracy, in connection with the attempt to thwart the expressed will of the American voters, in an attempt to deny Joe Biden his rightful election win, and install Donald Trump in the White House, in the Oval Office, in the presidency, even though he lost the election. In essence, they tried their nefarious best. They tried their damnedest to convert us from a democracy to a dictatorship. And they knew they did it. And they asked for pardons because they wanted to get away with it. They didn't want to be held accountable for their crimes. You know, that's kind of the antithesis of personal responsibility, right? Asking for a pardon because you want to get away with your crimes. You know, and this is, of course, the Matt Gates and the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Andy Biggs and the Scott Pardon Me Perrys and the Mo Brooks and the Louis Gohmerts. You know, it's the death of personal responsibility, certainly in those six individuals. And the question of personal responsibility got me to thinking again about Mark Meadows, former chief of staff to a criminal, former president of the United States. You know, there's been so much discussion and debate and speculation about whether Mark Meadows is cooperating with special counsel Jack Smith and the federal investigation into the insurrection. And let me start by saying this. 
setting aside Mark Meadows for a moment, based on the available evidence, Donald Trump is sunk. He will be held accountable for his crimes on and around January 6th. But you know what? If Meadows is cooperating, Trump is even more sunk. He's beyond sunk. He's like entirely effed. I'm sorry, friends. And the personal responsibility question, as it applies to Mark Meadows, got me to thinking. What does Mark Meadows want the lead line of his obituary to say? Not, not that he's going to leave this world anytime soon, not that that's what we are wishing for him, but how would he like his obit to read? Does he care? You know, maybe he does. I don't know, maybe he doesn't. But what I did is I went back and I pulled up another obituary, the obituary of H.R. Bob Haldeman, Richard Nixon's chief of staff during Watergate, Richard Nixon's criminal associate. Haldeman committed crimes as part of the Watergate affair and its cover-up. Now, Haldeman died back in November of 1993. And in case you don't remember who Haldeman was, here's a really short recap. This is from the History Channel. H.R. Haldeman and his role, the Nixon administration White House Chief of Staff, known as the gatekeeper to the Oval Office, who once called himself, quote, the president's son of a bitch, close quote. Haldeman became a key figure in the Watergate probe as investigators zeroed in on tape-recorded conversations of White House meetings. One of the tapes included a now famous 18 and a half minute gap, which was later revealed to include a conversation between Haldeman and Nixon. Haldeman was also implicated in the so-called smoking gun tape in which Nixon talked about using the CIA to divert the FBI's investigation of Watergate. And here's the upshot. Haldeman resigned on April 30th, 1973, along with other top staffers in the Nixon administration. He was tried and convicted of perjury, conspiracy, and obstruction of justice for his attempts to cover up the Watergate scandal. Now, after he resigned in 1973, he lived another 20 years and he passed away in November of 1993. And here is the headline in the Washington Post obituary for H.R. Haldeman. Quote, H.R. Haldeman dies, was Nixon chief of staff. Watergate role led to 18 months in prison. And here are the first couple of sentences of Bob Haldeman's obituary. H.R. Bob Haldeman, 67, President Richard Nixon's White House Chief of Staff and a key figure in the Watergate scandal that forced Nixon to resign from the presidency, died of cancer yesterday at his home in Santa Barbara, California. Haldeman, a former advertising executive who was credited with remaking Nixon's image in his successful 1968 campaign for the White House, served 18 months in prison for his role in Watergate. So friends, Bob Haldeman, Chief of Staff to Richard Nixon, will forever be remembered, as documented in his obituary, as somebody who went to prison because, in part, he tried to protect and cover up for a criminal president of the United States. What will history write about Mark Meadows? Will Mark Meadows care about how he's remembered? Because, you know, the lead line for his obituary could be, Mark Meadows, former chief of staff to Donald Trump, cooperated with prosecutors and tried to help save American democracy, tried to make right what he did so very wrong when he was serving a criminal president of the United States, tried to claw back some modicum of respectability and decency and patriotism by exposing and testifying about the crimes of Donald Trump. Or would Mark Meadows prefer to see written about him, 
you know, Mark Meadows, former chief of staff and co-defendant of Donald Trump was convicted of his crimes, imprisoned and passed away alone in his jail cell. You think Mark Meadows has it in him to do the right thing? Come on, Mark, better late than never because justice matters. Friends, as always, thank you for tuning in to our weekend edition of Justice Matters. If you'd like to know where else you can find me, you can find me all over the social medias, Twitter and Instagram and threads and uh, Facebook. I am at Glenn Kirshner 2 my name and the number two on those various platforms. You can also find my website, glennkirshner.com. I have some information there about some of the projects, some of the pro-democracy, some of the justice-centric projects that we're involved in. You can also find my daily legal analysis videos on my YouTube channel, Justice Matters with Glenn Kirshner. And then finally, if you have any interest in more formally supporting our all-volunteer efforts, our mission, our content here at Justice Matters, please feel free to go over to patreon.com. If you go over to patreon.com and you sign up to become a patron, I will send you some Team Justice and Justice Matters stickers and a personal handwritten note of thanks. And as always, a, a shout out and a, a sincere heartfelt thanks to all of the folks who have come over to patreon.com and are supporting our efforts. We couldn't do this seven days a week without your gracious support. So friends, as always, please stay safe, please stay tuned, and I look forward to talking with you all again soon.